Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. This morning is going to be kind of the first half of, I think, one thought that Peter is writing about in his letter to the scattered churches throughout Asia Minor. And we'll kind of tackle the first part of that this morning in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, starting in verse 13 and going through verse 21. And then next week we'll complete the thought that kind of brings us into the application of what he's been doing thus far. It's interesting, in John chapter six, verse 60, Jesus is speaking to crowds and, and his disciples, and Jesus' disciples look at him, and in kind of a private moment, they, they, they say to him, Jesus, this is, this is a really hard saying. Who can even listen to it? <laughs> It's hard to hear, Jesus. It's, this is a hard thing that you're saying. Who can even, who can even really hear it? <clears throat> Have you ever heard something that's too hard to hear? <laughs> Has anyone ever said something to you that, that is just too hard to listen to them because of the implications of what they're saying? Sometimes we get really, really bad news and it's too hard to hear. And, and we wanna pretend that we didn't hear it. And we wanna kinda move on from that hard news, that bad news. Sometimes it's, 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 a, it's, it's something that we're hearing that's, that's hard because it's hard for us to do. It feels maybe impossible or it feels really, really big. It feels really, really difficult. It might require some kind of change on my part. It might require some kind of, of sacrifice. And I just think, man, that's really hard to hear. It's interesting because Jesus asks, in a lot of ways, he asks really hard things of us all the time. And I think that the, the reality of Jesus asking hard things of us isn't because he, he, he wants to make life difficult, but because we are so far removed from, from what and who we should be who we were created to be, who we were designed to be, that many things that Jesus asks is hard. And I think the question that we have to ask ourselves at the very beginning, is Jesus worth what he asks for? Is Jesus worth what he asks? Is Jesus in all, again, going back to what we even talked about last week, is Jesus and what he promises and what he's prepared for us, is he worth is all of that worth what he asks? And, and last week, Peter pointed out, he said, you know, we live in this little while. We live in this little while where, where <clears throat> things are difficult and we will be disappointed. But we have to look at that little while and the difficult things in, in, in the contrast of what God has promised and prepared for us. 
But I don't know about for you, but for me, this week and next week in particular, I think Jesus is asking hard things through what Peter writes in this letter. But I also think that if we, if I am willing to surrender, it will also be really, really, really good. <laughs> because I want you to understand that, that nothing Jesus ever asks that's hard doesn't result ultimately in something that's really, really, really good. We just have to figure out what we're gonna do in the context of it. You see, the danger of, of reading scripture is that we have a tendency naturally to conform the text to us and sometimes even just ignore it altogether. <laughs> There's definitely passages in scripture that we're more drawn to and passages that we are wanting to leave alone. There's kind of a danger of either easing what's said in Scripture or the opposite, which is overstating what Scripture says. <laughs> now, now, we're really good at, at recognizing, you know, kind of those things, and, you know, we're very aware of that, and none of us really, none of us in here anyway, fall to those dangers. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think an easy, easy example of that overstating or understating what scripture says is, let's take a really easy example of like alcohol. Um, many of us grew up in families and contexts where um, drinking alcohol is, is a sin, period. And others of us may have grown up in households where we experienced the devastating consequences of someone who abuses and is addicted to alcohol. And the interesting thing is scripture says, doesn't say that drinking alcohol is a sin, but it does say that dependence on and giving myself over to is absolutely a sin. And so we have a tendency because of, I think just our, our difficulty in doing hard things, we either say none or don't worry about it. <laughs> but Jesus asks us to do the, the hard thing and says, I want you to walk with discernment and wisdom and I want you to sacrifice your taste and your preferences if that means it will bring greater glory to me. I also don't want you to place burdens on people that I haven't placed on people. <laughs> and that's hard, isn't it? That's hard. And, 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 and so there's a lot of other examples, but, but, but I'll stop there because it, it just makes sense to me. And, and, and so here's where we've come in, in this process with, with Peter in his letter. Peter starts by saying this, that you, to those he's written to, he's writing to those who have come to Jesus for salvation they are living uh, abroad throughout the, throughout the Roman Empire and they're, they're, doing, they're doing what they can to follow Jesus and, and live in his ways. And he writes to them and says, you are chosen. And that is the, the absolute foundation of everything that Peter is saying in this, in this letter to these churches. You are chosen. And he says, the way you're chosen is by God's for, God the Father, his foreknowledge, 
You are sanctified by the Spirit, a positional sanctification that you are set apart. I want you to remember that that the Spirit has already set you apart. And then thirdly, it says, for obedience to Jesus Christ. That you've been set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he talks about our living hope. This living hope, which is our inheritance that, 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 that God has prepared and he's promised for us that is too, too incredible to even describe. And he, and he kind of contrasts that with the, the little while that we live in, which is arguably difficult. And, and, and so, and so he, he, he gets to this point and, 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 he, and he says that, that, that we get to, to, to experience this one day and that we need to hold on and continue to, to, to live in that hope. Not hope as a wish, but hope as a absolute certain thing that will happen, it just hasn't happened yet. So in verse 13, Peter continues in his letter to these churches and these people, these chosen people. He says, therefore, so going from the understanding of our living hope, the understanding of the inheritance that we have, he goes on and he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want you to make sure we are clear on what the command, the imperative is in what Peter's saying right now when he says, therefore, set your minds on fully on the grace that will be brought to you. And that's what the imperative, that's what the command is. It is set your minds fully on the grace that will be revealed with the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the grace of everything that he's promised and prepared for us. That's the command. The, the other two things in verse 13 are kind of the, the attendant circumstances, the things that go along with that. It's a, as, as, we, as we set our hope on the grace that will be revealed, we need to be preparing our minds for action and we need to be sober-minded. And, and so really what, he, what he's saying is, is that because we are chosen and because we have a living hope, there is a required action on our part. And our required action is that we set our, our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we, what I want you to remember is before God asks you to do anything, he always does it before he asks. He does it for you before he asks you to do it. <laughs> and so what we've seen is, is he says that you're chosen and you're set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's the work that God has already done. And so God's grace and God's work comes first every single time in your life and my life, enabling and empowering our work of obedience. God's work come first, empowering and enabling our work of obedience. And, and so, and so here's, here's what, here's what he's, he's saying here is he says, set your hope completely on the grace that is to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. So he says, first of all, here's what I need you to do. As you set your mind, that's what you're supposed to do. That's the obedience. Preparing our minds for action. The, uh, the, the literal is gird your loins. 
which is super unhelpful. Because how do you gird your loins? So that is actually a really vivid illustration because what it was talking about is what you would wear. Typically, you were wearing robes in the first century. You were wearing these outer garments that were long and, and, and everyone was wearing these things because you know it was the fad. Um, I don't know if it was the fad, but it's what they wore. And, and so I don't know if you've ever worn a robe or something like that, but um, I mean, you know, like you don't see a lot of track stars running races in robes. Um, you see a boxer heading to the ring in a robe, but they don't box in their robe. Why? Because it would hinder their activity. And so girding your loins for action is, is what it is. It's, it's the, taking the robe, hiking it up so that you have the freedom and flexibility to move it, whatever the necessary movements you have. And so, so the idea is gird your loins, be ready, be flexible, be prepared to move at a moment's notice. And he says basically the idea there is that we have a mind that is engaged and on guard versus a mind that is on vacation and lazy. And here's the thing. It is really easy for our minds to be on vacation most of the time. Only when something is a perceived threat does our mind go into action. Our minds are fairly at rest and lazy when things are comfortable and things are known to us. But here's the thing. Some of the most comfortable and things that are known to us are some of the things we need to be most on guard about. And so don't, basically, I think what, what Peter's saying, if I were to put it in my words, is don't let your minds go on vacation. <laughs> Make sure that you're thinking, and not just thinking as you think, but, but thinking with the mind of Christ. And he says, be sober-minded. In other words, be self-controlled, level-headed, disciplined. A sober mind rarely reacts quickly or impulsively, it is thoughtful and careful with its response. And so here's, here's how he's describing the command of setting your hope on the grace, setting your hope on the grace that is uh, to, be, to be experienced and to be engaged and, and brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. It is a hope that is not just passively waiting for Jesus to return, but I would call it a go-time hope. <laughs> it is a hope that's on the move. It's a hope that's active. It is a hope that is moving forward. And so in verse 14, Peter goes on and he says, as obedient children, notice how he describes us, obedient children. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to raise kids and a lot of parenting philosophies and techniques and I really don't judge anyone's uh, parenting. Um, if I don't like it, I'll just stay away from your kids. <laughs> but that's not judgment, that's just for my sake. Might be a little selfish, but whatever. And, and, and so here's the thing though, the reality of children is that children don't make the rules, period, because they're children. That's just the nature. That's the reality of children. Children don't make the rules. And, 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 and there's a thousand different ways that that can work out. 
But what, what Peter says is, as obedient children, in other words, that we, are, we don't make the rules. We're not the ones who decide God's purposes for our lives. We are obedient children. So he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That feels like a really big, big statement. And, and so here, here, our activity is obedience and our, and our station is that we are children. And so he says, don't go to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't let that guide you or control you. In other words, don't shape your life around the things that people shape their lives around when they don't know God or his ways. Don't do that. <laughs> that's, that's the, it's not, we, when we think of passions of our former lives, a lot of times we, our minds just go to sexuality. That's not what he's only talking about. He's talking about everything. The way we think, the way we make decisions, the way we do things. And, and so he says, don't, don't do that that way, because here's the thing, if we do, if we continue to function in that context, we end up forfeiting our witness, which is the very thing that we're supposed to be, is witnesses of the grace and the glory and the holiness of God. And so then he says this, he talks about holiness. And, and we wanna understand holiness as Peter's talking about holiness, as the Bible talks about holiness. Holiness means different or distinct or set apart. That's what holiness is. Holiness is not perfection. And I'm not saying God's not perfect, but holiness is not perfection. Holiness is set apart on purpose. Holiness is set apart and then functions in the place that it is purpose to function. And, and, and so the focus on the grace to come with King Jesus is where we are supposed to set our minds. That's where we're supposed to focus. But also, not just this passive focus on the grace of, of Jesus, but right now, we are supposed to be holy. We work to be holy today. We pursue, pursue holiness right now. See, holiness is active. It's, it's transforming our minds. It's transforming our actions, our attitudes everything about us. And so here's how God is holy. God is holy in his being and his conduct. God is holy in his being. He is uncreated, he is eternal, he is infinite. The passage I read in Revelation says that these creatures around the throne, they talk about, they say, God, you are unlike anything else. You are unique, set apart, different in everything. And so God in his very being is unlike anyone else. And God in his conduct, he is holy. He is pure, he's just, he's wise. And what Peter is saying, and what God has said throughout his word, all the way back to Leviticus, he says we are to be like him, holy in our being and conduct. You and I, are invited to be holy, set apart, different, distinct in our being and in our conduct. And here's the good news, is that's not all on you. Because remember in earlier in chapter one, he says, sanctified by the Spirit, 
And that sanctification is positional. What does it mean? It means you are set apart. So God has already set you apart. So now he says, and now you join in my work and you be set apart too. You pursue, you work in that place. You work to be set apart even though you're already set apart. Because see, we can fight against that, can't we? We can fight against God's sanctification, his setting us apart in our lives. And so we are set apart, we are marked, we are different from the world around us. Already set apart by the Spirit, we cooperate to pursue that position. And here's, here's where things get hard. Holiness is not morality or ethics. Okay, I want us to hear that. Holiness is not morality or ethics. You see, holiness is being completely different in our way of life, completely different in our social life, in our public life, in our home life, in our private life. It is being completely different with our neighbors, with our extended family, with our friends, with our business partners, with our customers, with our classmates. Here's an example. The pursuit of holiness, if I am pursuing holiness, then here's the thing. What I say, including what I post, will be 100% true, and it will reflect the value God has placed on every image bearer. Say, well, how can I post something that's 100% true? Because I don't know. Well, if you don't know, don't post it. I don't care if half of it works with what you believe and what you want to believe. Don't post it if it's not 100%. Well, what if what I share with someone, I heard something and it sounds right. If you don't know that it's 100% truth, then don't say it. Because when we post something that is 1% inaccurate or untrue, and we know that it might not be completely true, or we might say this comes from a sketchy source, but I agree with the, the content in general. When we do that, we are making a conscious choice not to pursue holiness. That is not what I say, that's what God says. I'm not set apart, I'm not distinct, I'm not different. I'm acting like everyone else acts in the whole world who doesn't have the grace of Jesus in their lives. You see, a person can live morally and ethically and not be holy. Holiness is set apart and distinct. Here's, I think, one of the reasons that the world is in the shape that it's in and people are in the shape that they're in is because we don't pursue holiness. We pursue something that is easier to attain, which is morality. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that, that we don't want, that morality is is unimportant, because it is. Ethics are important, but it's not holiness. And, and, and so, you see, what, what he's saying is that he's saying, I have already set you apart, I need you to live set apart. I need you to live into what I've already done for you. So in, in verse 17, here, here's, here's what, what, what Peter writes, he says, and if you call on him as father, 
who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's, here's what he does here. He gives two basic reasons that we should pursue holiness. One is judgment, the other is the price of your redemption. Those are the two reasons that we pursue holiness. Judgment and the price of my redemption. Here's what he says, he says God is judge and God as judge will accurately and fairly evaluate my life. He will accurately and fairly evaluate your life. He won't pull any punches. He'll be candid in all of his purity, his grace, his wisdom, his justice. He will evaluate as the perfect judge. And, and I think it's, it's, really, it's really interesting because he makes this, he makes this statement. He says, he says, uh, he says, conduct yourself then with fear throughout the time of your exile. What is the time of our exile? It's till Jesus returns. <laughs> so live this way, pursue holiness until Jesus returns. That's just another way because we are exiles in this world until Jesus comes back to make a new creation. And, and, so, and so he says, live this way because, because here's, here's the thing. You need to understand that that, that God is the judge and he will judge. That is an absolute reality. And everything that, that I've said, everything that I've done, everything that I've thought, he knows. And he says, so pursue holiness, be set apart. Let your life reflect my being and my conduct. Be holy as I am holy. And the second thing he says is this, because the judgment part is the scary part, isn't it? <laughs> but the other side of the coin is the part that's not scary, that's overwhelmingly, incredibly humbling. The price of our redemption. He says, he says look, you weren't redeemed with silver or gold, but you were redeemed with the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, it would be really easy to, to have a, a visual of that statement in the first century, because there were slave markets all around. You know, we, we go to the, you know, the, 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 the farmer's market on Thursdays and Saturdays here in Modesto, right? Some of you'd maybe do that. Thursdays and Saturdays in Rome or in the various cities in the Roman Empire, Thursdays and Saturdays were like the slave market, kind of like going to the farmer's market. And you could buy slaves, you could buy people, you get like a cappuccino and a person. Like, it was that normal. It was not unusual. That's how normative it was. And so you'd go to the slave market and you would buy a slave typically with gold or silver. And, and, and so that, that, was, that was seen as something called redemption and redemption is simply a payment of some sort of agreed upon price that sets someone free or takes someone from this position to that position. That's redemption. 
And so what, 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 what here's what, what Peter's saying and what, what is happening here. He says, look, you were all slaves. But what God did was he didn't come and say, I'm going to spend some of my gold to buy you, to redeem you. What he did is he said, I went to the slave owner and I said, I'd like to give you my son that you can kill so that I can bring this person out of slavery into my family. Who in their right mind would say, I'm giving you my child for a stranger who doesn't even care about me and you can kill them so that this person can come live in my house. That's the price of our redemption. That's exactly what God did. He said, I will give my son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for all of you, for me. And, and so this is, he says, not with perishable, but the blood sacrifice death of Jesus Christ. That's the cost of our redemption. And so let me just ask this. It's, it's interesting. A lot of times we get caught up with God being judge and feeling like, well, you know, God's so harsh. He's, he's a judge and he's so harsh. Yet God gave everything for your salvation and your redemption. Let me ask this question. If, if I gave up one of my kids for a stranger, am I 100% in that that stranger is successful and cared for in his lifetime? I gave up one of my kids for them. And so if I'm in charge, if I have authority and power over them, I am certainly not going to treat them poorly because of the cost that I paid for them. Here's the thing, God's judgment is parallel and working in, in tandem with the cost that he paid for our redemption. He loves us so deeply. God is not some judge who's up there who doesn't know you or care about you. The very judge judging has given everything for your freedom and for your redemption. I mean, it's unbelievable. There's these two sides. God's judgment comes from the extreme price that he has paid for our freedom. How can we ever say that God doesn't love us? And so finally, we, we basically come back in, in, the, in the passage to, to, to what we talked about last week, that our living hope. He says in verse 20, he says, he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Back to Jesus, our living hope. That Jesus and all he promised and all that he's prepared and who he is, he is our inheritance. He is our living hope. God foreknew he had the plan. He knew he was going to give Jesus up for your sake. And Jesus was manifest at the right time to give his life as a ransom 
to redeem us. And then it says God raised him so that our faith and our hope are in God. And so what, is this, what does this mean for us? How does this come back to us? Before I give you two things that, that I want us to walk away with this morning, I wanna, I wanna give you an, a little bit of a glimpse as to where I, where I am right now. I've joked for a while with family and friends that I, I would like to determine my expiration date in life because I don't know if, about you, but I would like to live you know, my life a certain way and, and get to a place where I'm still doing well and then I'd like to you know, go be with Jesus. So I don't want anyone to be offended. This is me talking about me and I'm not judging anyone over this age, but I've decided that I'm gonna make a deal with God that I have no control over, nor am I gonna do anything to make this happen, but I want him to call me home at 70, okay? Now, those of you who are close to 70 or over 70, you don't have to make that deal. This is my deal, okay? And, and maybe I'm, I'm crazy for this, but, but I would like God to call me home at 70. Like, that's my expiration date. Now, now I, I've joked about that, but I have a number of reasons why that seems attractive to me. But as of late, with what God has been doing, this has become something very different, and it's become less of a joke and more of something that is about setting my hope on the grace that it's to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as I said, I'm not gonna do anything to control that or affect it, except I won't stop eating Mr. T's and drinking Mountain Dew. That's separate. But here's the thing. I've decided that I'm going to look at my life, that my life is done on this earth in this season that the time of my exile will be done when I reach the age of 70. So that means I have 20 years. Now, I can wrap my head around 20 years. Now, I know there's some people who say, I, I've not been alive for 20 years. Like, that seems forever. <laughs> then for others of us, we're kind of like, yeah, 20 years. Yeah, good luck. You've got like days. <laughs> But here's, here's what God is doing with me is, is Scripture talks about God is number our days and we're supposed to number our days. And so I have look, I'm looking at my life right now and saying, I've got 20 years. And so where is my focus? Where's my hope going to be set for the next 20 years? And that creates an urgency for me to say everything I do starting right now, what is it worth? What does it matter? Because I've got a little while. Somebody asked me, what if, what if you turn 73? Like, well, I don't know. I'll probably be angry for a little bit, but then realize that my life is in God's hands and he's in charge anyway, and I never had any control whatsoever. <laughs> but church, I, I'm at a point that I am feeling a greater urgency on everything that I do and the way I spend my time and I want my life to be set, my focus to be set for the rest of what I have left on the grace 
that is to be revealed with Jesus Christ. See, there's two things. Number one is this, that our hope and our faith is a faced forward. Our hope and our faith is faced forward. We tend to have a rearward looking faith. We talk a lot about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, which is great, which is Jesus' purpose when he came in his earthly ministry. But you know what? The cross and the resurrection is done. It's over. It's in the past. Where our focus is called to be, our faith and our hope, is to be on what he has for us next. Don't get caught looking backwards in your faith. Don't let your hope be in the past, what's been done before. Let your hope and faith be anchored forward. Because you see, what's happened in the past is a terrible motivator for you to do what you're supposed to do now. Let me give you this example. How many of you, let's just say, let's say as parents, how well does this work for motivating your child? I want you to clean your room today because three weeks ago, I fed you dinner. How's that work for motivation? <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> How about this? I want you to clean your room today because when you clean your room, after you've done it, we are going to go out for ice cream. Which of those two scenarios works and which one doesn't? <laughs> Unless they're like lactose intolerance, which you probably shouldn't have offered them ice cream in the first place. But you see, so often we, we look, I don't think that God ever intended Jesus' death on the cross to be enough motivation for us to persevere to the end. Jesus' death on the cross is absolutely critical but what he calls us to do is to look forward and says, I want you to persevere to the end because of what I have in store for you, not because of what I've already done for you. So our hope and our faith is faced forward. As Peter said, set your hope on the grace that's to be revealed in Christ Jesus. Second thing is this. What we hope in shapes how we live our lives. What you and I hope in shapes how we live our lives. I was listening to an economist the other day who's mostly right most of the time. He's pretty much accurately predicted where we are today when a lot of economists didn't. So he was asked a question, he was asked a question, are we in a recession? And, and he said, you know what? He said, in, in my technical terms, we are not currently in a recession. He said, but we will be in the next two years. <laughs> What's interesting is a recession can last for quite a while. I think the last recession was like 10 years. So here's, here's something about me then and what I place my hope in and how it shapes how I live my life. Because you see, if I have 20 years left and in the next couple years there's gonna be a recession, at least half or most of the time I have left is gonna be lived in a recession. If my hope is in the economy, 
that will control my life. But if my hope is in the grace that is revealed in the revelation of Christ Jesus, bring on the recession. Because I can live the next 20 years holy, set apart, as a sacrifice to Jesus Christ. And I can have as much, if not more, impact in a recession than I can in an economy that's thriving for the kingdom of God because of where my hope is planted. Is your hope in the economy? Is your hope in freedom? Is your hope in your health? Is your hope in your safety? Or have I, have you set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Are you pursuing holiness to be set apart or do we look like the world around us? God has paid an extraordinary price for you and for me and he loves you so deeply he will judge justly because you belong to him. So this morning, I challenge you to kind of take an inventory of your life, where you are and where your hope is. And I wanna pray for us right now. I wanna invite the worship team to come back up and, 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 and we can respond in, in worshiping together. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning. And God, I thank you. I don't even know if I can thank you, God, enough for you giving Jesus to pay for my sin and my redemption. And God, I... I wanna ask that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, give me and give us the ability to persevere and to set our focus, set our minds actively and urgently on the grace that will be revealed with Jesus Christ when he returns. God, for me, I pray that I will live the next 20 years holy and set apart. like an offering on the altar for you, Jesus. God, I pray that we would do that. God, that when people look at us, they would see a people who are completely different from the world, not just because of morals or ethics, but because we are holy like God, you are holy. In our being and our conduct. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.